Good morning. I hope you're all well and thank you for joining us this morning. God willing, this time next week, our pastor Graham King will be back and we'll be doing this slot on a Wednesday morning. Um, we're so thankful for him and his family. Uh, saw some photographs last night of their holiday in Croatia. What a beautiful, amazing family and we're so excited to have them back next Wednesday. Today, this morning, we are going to be picking up where we left off um, our study in Philippians Paul's brilliant letter um, to the Philippian church. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to get together this morning to open up your word. Father, thank you for every person listening from the youngest to the oldest, from the most local person to the person on the other side of the world tuned in right now, Lord. We pray that we are blessed as we study your word, that you use this time to grow us in our faith, our understanding and our love for you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we read the opening paragraph of Philippians, which was the author's salutation to the recipients of the Apostle Paul's letter to his beloved church in Philippi, which is the typical kind of opening that we see when reading a letter or an epistle as they are known in the Bible. We spoke last week about this letter being known as the epistle of joy and that as Christians, we are blessed to know the real source of permanent joy. We also spoke about why temporary external circumstances, as much as they can try, cannot penetrate the joy and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Today, we are going to see this lived out in quite a dramatic way as Paul continues to tell us of how he finds hope in the most trying of scenarios and how this is being worked out for the glory of God and to further the gospel. Let's read our text. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 from verses 12 to 18. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Back in the 17th century, the preaching of John Bunyan was so powerful and so popular that the leaders of the day wanted to keep him quiet, so they had him thrown in jail. Refusing to allow this to silence him, he began to preach loudly from the prison courtyard. Amazingly, not only did we have a large captive audience of prisoners, but hundreds of local residents from the local town in Bedford would come and listen to him from the other side of the prison walls. As you can imagine, this didn't go down very well with those in charge that wanted him silenced, so they moved him deeper within the prison and no longer allowed him to speak. Yet, 
in that silence, God used him to speak louder than ever before and to reach more people than he could have ever imagined. As it was during this time that he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, the great Christian classic that has ministered the gospel to tens of millions of people all over the world for hundreds of years. But just like John Bunyan, the Apostle Paul found himself in a situation that he could never have dreamed of. And just like John Bunyan, we will see how God used Paul's captivity to reach more people than ever before. If you've read Romans, you will know that Paul had a strong desire to go to Rome and to preach years before he found himself there. Paul wanted to go to Rome because it was the capital of the Roman Empire and he knew how much of an impact the gospel could have there. Paul writes in Romans a few years earlier, and this is Romans here from verse 10 in chapter 1, Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you whilst among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, but have been prevented to do so so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you. Even as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul knew strategically how important it was going to be to bring the gospel to Rome. Ideally, his plans would go en route to Spain. And as he writes here, he has been praying for, to God to open the door into making this happen. But as we will see, this is a wonderful example that God does not always answer prayers exactly the way that we plan them out in our mind or that how we ask. It is doubtful that the Apostle Paul imagined arriving in Rome via being shipwrecked or upon arrival in Rome, being chained to Roman guards for 24 hours a day, watching and listening to his every move. But here he is in Rome, a place that he had hopes of visiting, but rather than preaching from the Colosseum, he is preaching in chains. Now under house arrest, chains to the most highest ranking Roman guards from Caesar's household for 24 hours a day, facing the very real possibility of execution for two very long years. Can you imagine? But if we ever... If, sorry, but if, if we ever were looking for an example of someone that is looking at a situation as glass half full, then this is it. Rather than seeing this as a difficulty, he sees it as a launch pad to further the gospel. Let's go to our text. So Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You may remember in Genesis... When Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and all that transpired in him becoming the ruler under Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt, he was able to look back and see God's sovereign fingerprints on his life at every single point. If you know the story, you will know that the land in which Jacob and his sons, Joseph's dad and brothers, were living, they were stuck with a famine which forced them to head to Egypt where Joseph was now ruler and the only place that had huge reserves of food. 
And Joseph, amazingly, was able to say to his brothers, It was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his household as ruler over all of the land of Egypt. He goes on to say to his brothers, What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. You can't fail to think of Romans 8.28 here that Paul obviously wrote a few years before. God causes all things to work together for for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. And now verse, verse 12 right now. Now I want you to know, I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul's saying, now I want you to know, this is Paul's way of saying, pay attention, this is important. He's wanting to encourage his church in Philippi that love him and who are grieved to hear of his imprisonment, who can't physically help him being 800 miles away, other than to send this gift that they have sent with Epaphroditus. But Paul is saying, hey, it's okay. God's at work here, despite the fact that I'm in prison. So he says, brethren, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So what are these circumstances that has led to the greater progress of the gospel? We have touched on them a few times with some broad brushstrokes, but let's just park here for a few minutes and dig a little bit deeper. Paul is physically in chains, under house arrest in a privately rented accommodation, chained to a Roman guard for 24 hours a day for two long years. And because of the high profile nature of Paul's case, this meant that Paul had the highest ranking guards assigned to him, the Praetorian elite soldiers. These were the emperor's own personal bodyguards from the household of Caesar that not only were considered the cream of a crop from a military point of view, but they also had a political clout and they were consulted when choosing emperors and were paid handsomely for doing so. The soldier who was chained to to one day might have been Nero's bodyguard the day before. His colleague who took over next might have been one of the executioners of Octavia, Nero's wife. And he might have carried her head to Nero's mistress a few weeks later. Paul, in chains, patiently awaiting trial after appealing to Caesar with his life truly in the balance. And at the same time, Paul tells us that there are these other preachers in Rome that are really jealous of him, that are teaching out of their own selfish ambition that we will read about a little bit later. So in all in all, these circumstances really couldn't have been described as anything other than dire. And what this reinforces here is that none of us are exempt from the difficulties and trials of life. If the Apostle Paul, the author of 13 New Testament books, who is in the middle of a hugely significant mission in proclaiming the gospel, if he isn't exempt from difficulties, how can we expect to be immune? As Christians, we are no different and we face difficulties on every level. Physical problems, financial setbacks, family heartbreak, significant loss, God has never promised us a trouble-free life in this world, but he has promised us a trouble-free heart. When we put our trust in him and in the midst of difficulty, we can know his peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, I know if you were to download certain popular so-called Christian podcasts or watch some of the leading televangelists, you'll be hearing a very different message. A message that shouts out that Jesus died so that you can live your best life now or that he died so that you can live a life of wealth, health and prosperity. 
But please, please know that this is a false gospel being peddled by some of the most popular false teachers with the biggest followings that is the public face of Christianity in the world today. The name it and claim it prosperity gospel, the false, the false gospel that has no category for what Paul is speaking about here. In fact, if Paul or John Bunyan was a member of one of their so-called churches, they would have told him that he is in the circumstances he is in because he doesn't have enough faith or that he hasn't planted a big enough financial seed or that he didn't speak enough positive things into existence. This is a disturbing, dangerous twisting of biblical Christianity that has made its way into churches all around the world, leading millions of people astray into a false gospel. Do not be deceived. Test everything in the word of God. Paul saying that his circumstances here have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. This is verse 12. So how is it that Paul's imprisonment has served to advance the gospel? The apostle Paul was chained day and night to these soldiers, meaning that he had no privacy when he ate, when he slept, when he wrote the other three of prison apostles, Ephesians, Colossians and Philemon, when he preached, taught or spoke with his visitors. But this lack of privacy meant that whoever was chained to him got a front row seat of watching the Apostle Paul in action and couldn't fail to hear the gospel. During the process of Paul making his way to Rome, he had access to people that he wouldn't have met otherwise in a million years. Felix, the governor, Festus, Agrippa, the king and his wife. And these guards that were going to and from Caesar's household becoming saved whilst chained to Paul and then going back themselves to spread the gospel into places that Paul would never have been able to have gained access back at the Roman headquarters. Over the two years, you can just imagine some of the conversations between the soldiers. Have you heard about this Christ that Paul keeps on talking about? He seems pretty sincere, right? Can you believe that he's willing to die for this? Paul, winning them to Christ by his proclamation of the gospel and by conducting himself in a manner Worthy of the gospel, one by one. No matter how hard the enemy tries, the gospel cannot be shut down. And it may be useful for us to pause just for a moment and in our mind consider what are the circumstances that we find ourselves in today? How can we be inspired by Paul here and use our individual context for the greater progress of the gospel? And just like Paul, maybe we find ourselves in some really trying or dire circumstances, yet maybe something amazing can come of it. Maybe you've lost your job, so maybe this is an opportunity to take the gospel into your new workplace. If you're having to go to hospital, then maybe this is an opportunity to take the gospel into the hospital. If you've recently had to move homes or schools, then this could be an incredible opportunity to use that as a springboard to share the gospel. What was meant for evil, God can use it for good. And maybe we can pray for God to show us these opportunities in our own context to further the gospel here in Peacehaven and beyond. In verse 14, Paul continues, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. This is mind-blowing. How can this be? If you were looking in, seeing that by being a believer... This could really potentially get you imprisoned and hauled before Nero and face having your head chopped off. How does this not have you running in completely the opposite direction saying, no thank you, I'm out of here. These people had the opposite response 
their confidence went up. Paul's actions are role modelling that Jesus is supremely valuable. Paul counts everything, everything as loss in order that he may gain Christ. His actions speak louder than his words of the incredible worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's the message that the believers are getting loud and clear, that this is real and that it's so worth it. And what is squashing that fear? The fear of the people, the fear of persecution or the fear of death. One commentary that I was reading this week documents six key things here that helps eliminate fear. One, believing that Jesus is real. Two, knowing that our sins are forgiven because of Jesus. Three, knowing that God Almighty is for us and not against us. Four, understanding that God is sovereign over all of our circumstances, over prison, rulers, life and death. Number five, knowing that glory is coming and that this is all temporary. And finally, six, and if all this is true, and I don't need to be afraid of anything, that's the message that they were getting loud and clear, which is what led them to have more courage and speak the word without fear. And then it continues in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. This is remarkable, isn't it? Here we see that there are some preachers that know the real gospel message. They are actively promoting it, but rather than being motivated to do so out of love, of seeing people saved and come to Christ, they're doing so out of a selfish ambition in making a name for themselves. Motivated by wanting to be more known than Paul, motivated by having a ministry that bears more fruit than the apostle, and like many of us that would have witnessed this in our jobs and careers, what happens when an environment like this manifests itself? We begin to see people try and elevate themselves against people they see as threats by having little digs or by slandering that person's name or work. This wasn't new to Paul. He saw it happen time and time again with accusations everywhere he went, attacking his apostolic position, his theology and his character. And he would have been comforted by knowing that the same accusations were made of Jesus and that we can be comforted when we find ourselves in similar situations today. It can feel like a lonely place at times, can't it, when you are not willing to compromise on biblical truth. Maybe you're the only Christian in your class at school, in your family or in the office at work. Maybe you have faced unfair accusations yourself or come against the pressure to compromise your biblical principles. But do not fear. In 1 John 3.13, we hear, we read, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. In 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which will come upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Paul is able to see past the injustice of the attacks against him. And despite the motives of the preachers, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And therefore, he sees the bigger picture and is able to rejoice in the gospel being furthered. This is something we can take great encouragement in. The gospel is making great progress and spreading across this pagan land of Rome. And it has nothing to do with the character, the skill or the motives of the person that is proclaiming it. How encouraging that we do not have to wait until we are great theologians or until we've mastered the original biblical languages. Until we can share the hope that we have in Jesus with people. The power of the Holy Spirit is ministering to these people despite the heart of the people speaking. You can't help but think of Jonah here, the prophet that was told to go and tell the nation of Nineveh to repent, but he couldn't have been any less motivated to do so. When he was asked, he even tried jumping on a boat to go in the opposite direction to Spain. But our God, being an amazing God, an amazing, patient God of second and third and fourth chances, sent a giant fish to go and get him and put him back on the right path leading to Nineveh. And then he gets spat out, smelling of fish, begrudgingly passes on the most underwhelming, begrudging message to the people of Nineveh and 120,000 people repented. Amazing. On Sunday, God willing, we will aim to finish our study through the first chapter of uh, Philippians and we'll pick it back up again in verse 19. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be together online and to open your word, Father. We thank you that you have given us such incredible hope through your gospel message, Lord. A message and a plan that gives us a comfort and a joy in knowing that no matter what we are going through in this season right now, that you are for us and you are with us and that your name will be lifted high and that the gospel message cannot be silenced. We praise you and we love you and we thank you for all that you are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.